0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order, additional term supply.
1: Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Thursday, June 28, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. J.Q.'s is your producer, and coming up on today's show, well, that J.Q.'s is going to speak to Swan, the Service Women's Action Network about their inaugural meeting of the Military Women's Coalition that's coming up later on this year down in Atlanta. And we'll be joined by AMVETS for their weekly session. And we are not going to be talking to Joe Schinelli, We're going to be talking to someone even better than Joe Schnelli. We're going to be talking to the head of their AMVETS HEAL team and all of their medical programs. Going to talk to them about what all of those things are and how they benefit the veteran community, not just AMVETS members. It's a really wonderful program that they've just started up fairly recently over there. We're going to find out a lot more about it today. So all of that and more Coming up on The Morning Briefing, this Thursday edition. And of course, we begin things by welcoming Jake Hughes to the studio. Jake, good morning. How are you today?
2: I'm doing fantastic,
1: Eric. How are you? I'm okay. My shoulder blade stopped hurting sometime last night. As I laid down to go to bed, I started doing all sorts of stretches and heard some popping and cracking in there, and then it uh, it calmed down with a handful of uh, uh, ibuprofen to of course, uh, assist naturally. in the process. Uh, before we start uh, the show today, I want to wish a very happy birthday to my mother, Jennifer. It is, uh, I'm not going to say which birthday, but it is her birthday today. (laughs) So happy birthday to her. Uh, She has been a wonderful mother and an amazing grandmother, and we uh, wish her many more birthdays uh, and thank her for all of the great things she's done for my family and for me while I was in the military. She was the one who uh, came and visited me just about every place that I was stationed. Came to Iceland while I was there, came to Italy, while I was there, Greece, while I was there, Guam, while I was there, even. Uh, and that's a rough one, man. Going out to Guam for a trip, it takes uh, a couple days just to get there, essentially. Not only that, but her flight got delayed. So she got stuck in Japan for a day. Oh, so wow. she lost, yeah, like at the airport in a hotel overnight. So she lost, uh, you know, half a day uh, spent with me over in Guam, which, uh, in, ironically enough, her having lost half a day, half a day is the greeting in Guam, essentially. Half a, H-A-F-A, and then a day, A-D-A-I. Half a day means like, hey, how you doing? Good morning. Huh. Have a good Learned day. Learn
2: something new every day.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things right there. It's, uh, it's the Chamorro language that they speak on Guam. Uh, not spoken all that regularly now, but it's still around. So yeah, happy birthday, Mom, and thanks for all that you've done for uh, myself, your grandson, your daughter-in-law, and so on. Now. Back to the matters at hand, and that being, well, Jake and I are going to talk about the news taking place around the veteran and military community, specifically from ConnectingVets.com, your best website for veteran information, news, benefits, fun stuff, cool stuff. It's all there, and you want to be going there. I don't know, Jake. What would you say is a minimum number of visits per day? 15? 20 at least. 20. Yeah, I could see 20. I could see 20 visits. And... You know, if you've got a boss that's you know hovering over your desktop computer at work or something like that, you know, like Gary Cole from Office Space asking you for uh, the cover letters on TPS reports and that kind of thing. Okay, well you got a phone, right? Just go to Facebook, go to Twitter. We are at Connecting Vets on all social media. You can find us there. You can follow us there, and you'll get notifications when everything goes up on the site. Coming up later on today, we're going to have an article on some people we talked to last week, the Veteran Enhancement Project, an amazing group of veterans and active duty military that are working to get uh, disabled veterans and wounded warriors back out on the road on two wheels by customizing motorcycles for them, adapting the motorcycles that they have. And even if it's just an issue of not having the finances to fix your motorcycle, they will do that for you. And this isn't Some massive like, you know, 50 garage, Harley-Davidson sponsored thing. It's just a couple of guys at a garage just doing what they can to help get those vets out there enjoying the open road on a motorcycle. There will be an article on that with the audio of our interview going up on the site later today and oh so much more. But let's take a look at some of the big things taking place on the Connecting Vets website right now. Well, we talked yesterday about the Air Force veteran, John Michael Watts, who lit himself on fire, Jake, down at the Georgia State Capitol in Atlanta. Yeah. We wondered what the issues might be that he was having difficulty with. I don't think either of us would have guessed this one. We were kind of thinking maybe it was a health issue, a mental health issue. No. Apparently, according to the Veterans Empowerment Organization that he visited down there, uh, Services for Veterans and Families, it's a program within VA, he was looking for help with his housing situation. So apparently he was uh, having difficulty securing housing. This uh, program can take four to eight weeks to get you into housing. Apparently that wasn't fast enough. Uh, it doesn't, it it just doesn't sound right. It sounds like there was something more going on than just not having a place to live, which is a significant issue. But if you have to do it temporarily, it's something that I, I know it would be difficult, but you think most people would be able to somehow find a way to get through that, find a way to get by, whether going to a shelter or uh, living in your car. We know he had a car because he put a sign in it, all that kind of thing. Um, they said that he was there uh, um, the day before he set himself on fire. He was there around 2 or 2.30 and approached uh, uh, was approached in the lobby by the executive director, who actually noticed him and asked him if he wanted food or water or anything like that. They said, and this is a quote from uh, one of the people uh, from the organization, he didn't look like somebody that was homeless. He looked well put together, clean-shaven, sober, looked good, but you could definitely tell through his body mannerisms he looked like he was under duress. Less than 24 hours later, he came up to the west entrance of the state capitol in Georgia Got out of his vehicle wearing a vest that had fireworks and incendiary liquids and devices on it, uh, dipped, doused himself in a flammable liquid and lit the fireworks. Um, a Georgia State Patrol trooper did extinguish the flames pretty quickly, but as we said yesterday, Burns over 85 to 90% of his body, still said to be in serious condition. And uh, it, it, this is just a horrible, horrifying story, and it, it kind of surprised me to learn that it wasn't a health issue or a mental health issue specifically, and that it appears to be a housing issue. Although, again, as we said yesterday, when it elevates to this point and someone taking those measures, there's got to be some mental health issue involved as well. And as they said, you know, he looked well put together, but his mannerisms were a bit off. And that can happen. I've seen that happen with people who had no issues, and then all of a sudden one day you're just like, what's going on, man? You're acting a little funny, and then things kind of go off the rails don't know if this was that kind of situation but we do know that that something horrible happened between going to that office and maybe it was just hearing hey this could take four to eight weeks to get you into house and saying that's not good enough and then I mean it, when I think that's not good enough I normally would uh, file a complaint or yell at somebody or something like
2: that use that little ice box
1: yeah put that you know do do what you can do a sit-in bring attention he decided to set himself on fire and used fireworks as well I mean this is I, there's something something going on here more than just the housing situation, I guess is what we're trying to say, and uh, we're, we hope they're able to figure it out. We hope he pulls through as he still is in serious condition. Uh, if he does pull through, burns to 85 to 90% of your body, that's, that's going to cause health issues for the rest of your life. So really just a horrible story coming out of Georgia, and we'll keep you updated as we learn uh, more about it and find out uh, what's going on with him. Another awful story. This one, uh, I would say not quite as horrible, but this one coming out of New Mexico, as reported by our Jonathan Kopanger, veteran named Jesse Gordon, who's a Vietnam vet, wasn't allowed to board a city bus in Albuquerque, New Mexico with his service dog. Guess why he wasn't allowed to board that bus, Jake?
2: Uh, Because was it because
1: of the breed of the dog? Ah, actually, you're pretty close there. The bus driver said that the dog, Jackson, didn't look like a service dog. Okay. Uh, what, what does a service dog look yeah, like? Any yeah. Any dog
2: can be a service dog.
1: I think a lot of us uh, do have this thought when we think of service dogs and working dogs in particular. There's a difference between the two. You got to remember that. But we think of the German Shepherd. We think of the pure breed, large dogs uh, that do those kind of things. Service dogs, not necessarily. I mean, I've actually, and I'm not necessarily working dogs. I've talked about it before. Uh, my wife and I really like watching the show Live PD on ANE. I've seen. Probably a dozen different canine units on that show, police working dogs at least. I think only one or two of them were like the the prototypical German Shepherd that you would think of. A lot of them look to be some sort of mutt. I mean, there is no thing that a dog must look like to do a certain job, but... This guy's told uh, in an interview with KRQE in Albuquerque, New Mexico, the veteran, Jesse Gordon, Vietnam vet, said the bus driver told him his post-traumatic stress was not a recognized disability and that it wouldn't let him have a vested service dog. So first, the guy says, that doesn't look like a service dog. And he goes, "Uh, well, it is. And well, what's your disability? Uh, I have PTSD. Well, that's not a real disability, so you're faking it, and that's not a real service dog. Oh,
2: my God. That just ticks me
1: off so much that people still have that kind of attitude. So the bus company is investigating. However, they have already said the bus driver did not follow the rules. That's because according to the ADA, that's the Americans with Disabilities Act, what disturb- distinguishes a service animal from other animals is the training and nothing else. You could have a chihuahua as a service animal yep. if it's been properly trained. Now, having owned a Chihuahua before, (laughs) good luck training one of those things to do anything other than pee on your clothes and on the floor and everything like that. Little terrified, uh, terrified animals always look like they're either on the verge of uh, killing everything or uh, having their skeleton jump out of their body and run away in fear. But for a dog to be a service animal, the task that it's trained to must be directly related to the owner's disability. Because of this, when traveling with a service animal, you may be asked two questions. Is the dog a service animal required because of a disability? What work or task has the dog been trained to perform? They cannot ask about the nature or extent of your disability. So this guy didn't need to tell the bus driver that he was uh, dealing with PTS or anything like that. They also can't require proof that the animal has been certified or force the animal to wear a vest or tag. So that's interesting because then you could just have, you know, I, I have a dog. You've met my dog, my big, doofy, yeah. lovable, a little bit too energetic dog who just thinks you know, he weighs 55 pounds, but he thinks he weighs five. So he tries to sit in your lap and all that stuff. Let's say I wanted to take public transportation, something that other than trains and subways in New York, I haven't done in a very long time. But let's say I wanted to, hypothetically speaking. If you're not required to have a vest or tag on the dog and they can't you know, request proof of the training that it's received – you could just say, yeah, this is my service dog. What's he been trained to do? Oh, he's been trained to do you know, whatever, to, to help me do this, do that. Uh, with the rules under the ADA, you could then take the dog onto the bus. Of course, I don't think there's uh, too many, if any, people out there trying to fake it with, uh, with the, to get their dog on the bus just to break the rules. That being said... I can think of at least one example, and this was up on Long Island, where someone was uh, was faking the use of a service dog. Now, they got caught partially because they were in a uh, parade. Uh, and and I think they were claiming that they were blind, and that's what the dog was for—that it was a service dog for blind blindness and PTSD and everything like that. And then shortly after the parade, there's the guy, you know, without his dark sunglasses on, no cane, playing with the dog, throwing a <laughs> ball. It, I mean, it was as crazy as that. It was it was insane. My VFW post was furious about that. Those cases though are few and far between. If someone says this is my service dog. There you go. That's really all you need to to know about that. And again, the two questions that the people are allowed to ask businesses, specifically we're talking about, or in this case, uh, public transportation, is the dog a service animal required because of a disability? That's question one. Question two, what work or task has the dog been trained to perform? Uh, of course, you could give the uh, the smart answer and be like, oh, he's been trained to rip out the throats of uh, bus drivers who ask too many questions. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the service that he does for me. Shut up and let me on the bus with my dog. Um, there are also state rules regarding assistance animals and service dogs. In New Hampshire, it's a misdemeanor for willfully interfering with a service animal. So if you have a service dog and someone comes up to pet it and you ask them not to and they still do it, or if someone blocks a dog from doing what it's supposed to do for you, that's actually a misdemeanor crime. In California, it's the same type of law, it's a misdemeanor as well, but you may also receive a $10,000 fine and go to jail for up to one year. And we actually have, let me click on this, we have a link to the state laws on service animals. So let's see uh, Jake's home state of Texas, what those rules are. Oh come on! This computer is so slow. So, uh, let, da, 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 da. oh, you got to click on a whole bunch of, uh, you got to click on a whole bunch of different things to get to it. So, uh, we're not going to do that. But there are, uh, there is a link to this website. So if you have a service dog and you have questions about that based on your state, you can go through there. There's phone numbers to call. There are websites. There's documents you can download, uh, like info on all access rights in Texas. Includes Yahoo list for discussion of service dog issues. I guess that's an interesting way to do it in this day and age. Hey, let's go on Yahoo. What's your Yahoo messenger? Hey, do you have ICQ? Let's start an AOL (laughs) chat room. Yeah, yeah, AOL chat. All that stuff. Oh, boy. So there is um, uh, a a lot going on here, but yeah, kind of of an upsetting story. Now, for emotional support animals, the rules are more stringent on um, documentation, actually. So If you are traveling with your service dog, when you're flying on an airline, you can't just show up with a dog and be like, Hey, this is my service dog. you got to let him on the plane, too. You have to let them know. Uh, Most airlines require at least a 48-hour advance notice if you plan to travel with a service animal. And you may also be required to provide documentation proving your serviced animal isn't just a pet. That can be a letter from a physician, mental health professional. Um, The letter must not be more than one year old for emotional support animals and should be on letterhead from a mental health professional. Letter needs to state that the passenger has a mental health related disability and that having the animal accompany the passenger is necessary to the mental health or treatment of the person. Also, included in the letter is a statement that the person writing the letter is a mental health professional and that the passenger is under their professional care. Airlines are not permitted to require the specific time, uh, to inquire as to the specific type of mental health disability. Although it seems them requiring that documentation and everything would go against the Americans with Disability Act, two questions that you're allowed to be asked and all the rest of it.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, con- once you get to air travel, yeah, things it's a get little different.
1: messy. It's different than getting on a bus or on a train. And so, stuff like that and I've seen people you remember there was a video not too long ago I mean I think it was earlier this year and I think it was down south someplace where a woman at a restaurant freaked out because there was a dog in there and it was a large dog it was a service animal of a veteran for some reason I think it may have been a great Dane because it was like at table level at this restaurant essentially she did not like an animal being in that establishment freaked out lost her mind started swearing threatening people all that stuff um, there are those people out there. Again, they're as few and far between. Well, maybe just a little bit less few and far between than people who would be faking the use of a service dog. But that that was even more upsetting to me uh, you know, at that point. But right now hearing uh, someone who works for public transportation telling someone, I don't believe that's a service dog just based on what the dog looks like and saying post-traumatic stress isn't a disability. Well, that guy, uh, he may be going to some sensitivity training is what I would say. <laughs> I doubt they'll lose their job because uh, you know it's not something that somebody should lose their job over. But they should definitely uh, be filled in on what exactly the rules are. Someone who knows a lot about a lot of rules was up on Capitol Hill yesterday. And that, of course, was Robert Wilkie. Went through his uh, confirmation hearing for the secretary of the VA position. Our own Matt Saintsing was up there and... You know, he wrote an article last night about what you need to know about the confirmation hearing that you should uh, definitely check out. It looks like there are going to be uh, there's not going to be any problem in him getting confirmed. In fact, John Tester said, you're as good at this as anybody I've ever seen, said Wilkie, quote, ain't a rookie. And then also said, I think you got the tools to do the job. Now, that's Democrat John Tester from Montana. Um, this is an appointee from the Trump administration getting support from Democrats. That's kind of all you need to know about it. But there is more to know. And Matt Sainzing has all of that stuff in. The article that's up on ConnectingVets.com right now, right on the homepage, he's 55 years old, Air Force Reserve officer, and that's one of the things you need to know about him from another article that Matt Sainting has up on there. Four things you need to know about Robert Wilkie. Yes, he is a veteran. He's also the son of an Army artilleryman who grew up on Fort Bragg. So that must have made an impression on him because he's now joined both the Navy and Air Force Reserves. He's 55 years old now while serving in the Naval Reserve, Air Force Reserve, once assigned to the Defense Department as well. He's also served as a Sec- Assistant Secretary of Defense under both Robert Gates and Donald Rumsfeld, was the youngest senior leader in the department before that, Special Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs, Senior Director of the National Security Council under Condoleezza Rice, uh, but really, as we found out from Justin Brown last week, got his start in Congress as a senior advisor to Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina and an advisor on international security affairs to former Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott of Mississippi. It's also been more than just the acting VA secretary. That's the position that kind of brought him into the public eye. But while serving in that, as we've talked about before, he was also the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. So this is a guy who's done a lot of stuff. Also, that article talks about the lawsuit blocking his appointment from Vote Vets and other organizations that we talk to Vote Vets about. It uh, does not look like that's going to block his appointment. Uh, in fact, you know the VSOs have come out and said, no, this, there's that shouldn't block his appointment. Even AmVets and Joe Schinelli, who we normally talk to on Thursdays, he's not going to be here today, as we said. The head of their HEAL team and medical programs is going to be in and joining us on the show today to talk about all of that. AMVETS were the first ones to raise concerns about the appointment of Wilkie as acting secretary because it didn't follow the proper process that it's supposed to. Surprise, surprise! This administration did things their own way. Um, you know that can be a benefit and it can be a drawback. In this case, they saw it as a drawback. But once it was done, uh, essentially, as as Joe has told us and as the other VSOs have told us, no sense crying over spilt milk. He was put into that position, seemed to do a pretty good job while he was in that position. So uh, they're they're you know they're open to his confirmation if it happens. Been seeing a lot from the VSOs saying you know they, they're very hopeful that he uh, will be able to do a good job. Um, of course, yesterday he had talked about privatization at the VA, he said he is looking to offer more options to veterans, but is not for privatization. So that, that was the big question that a lot of people had. Apparently there were also some questions about his past that, uh, that, came, that did not come up that some people thought would. Well, that's okay. You know, The senators asked what they wanted to ask. They didn't ask what they didn't want to ask. I want to ask you, Jake, have you ever been a member of one of those warehouse shopping clubs like Costco or Sam's Clubs or BJ's? No. Why not? Never needed to buy in bulk. There you go. Well, that's 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 not a bad thing. You know, when I first got out before I was uh, married and all that stuff and I was single, I actually did have a membership to Costco uh, personally, and that was the only one near where I lived. Uh, there was... There was no Sam's Club, which is actually, of course, uh, part of the Walmart family of companies. Sam is referring to Sam Walton, one of the founders of Walmart. Um, Costco was a benefit for me where, you know, there were things, food, I'm not buying in bulk from, from Costco as a single guy because it would all go bad unless you're talking about like mac and cheese and stuff like that. But being able to get your paper towels, your toilet paper, some clothes and things like that. It's always a a good option to be able to use, to check against other places and find some pretty interesting stuff. Well, Sam's Club that I just mentioned that comes out of the Walmart family of companies is now offering some discounts to veterans, active duty troops, and their spouses. That's right. You can get some savings when you purchase or renew a Sam's Club membership as being reported on ConnectingVets.com through August 1st you sign up for a new membership or renew one, you'll receive a $30 military member package, includes a $10 Sam's Club gift card, free rotisserie chicken. I don't know about Sam's rotisserie chickens because I'm not a member there. I can tell you that that is the number one seller at Costco. People go there just to get their rotisserie chickens, which is why the rotisserie chicken is always located in the very back of the Costco stores. You can go to any Costco around the country, and you'll find things organized differently. You'll find things in different places with one exception. The rotisserie chickens will be at the back of the store, and it's genius because they know while you're walking back there to get that delicious, savory rotisserie chicken for, like, four bucks or something ridiculous that they sell it for you're gonna see something else that you (laughs) want it's like you know how you have the impulse buys at the counter at the uh at the the little mini mart or whatever like at the 7-eleven they'll put the things up by the counter at the grocery store like oh pack of gum or some silly little magazine or a little toy for the kids This is the opposite. This is their impulse buy (laughs) that they know you're going there to buy, and they put it at the back of the store and use the whole rest of the store to drag you in where you thought you were going in to spend $4.99 on a rotisserie chicken. You come out with a new hot tub, three mattresses, (laughs) some tires that you didn't even know you needed. I mean, it's it's crazy. You'll walk in there and have a plan to go to those places and be like, I'm going to spend $50 today. I'm going to get a chicken. I'm going to get toilet paper. I'm going to get some seltzer water, and then you'll come out. Two grocery carts full of stuff. Spent four hundred dollars. Wait a second. What happened? No, no. This is this isn't what happened. All right. So you get that ten dollars Sam's gift club card, Sam's club gift card, a free rotisserie chicken, an apple pie, twenty count cocktail croissants, and two dollars off a loaded potato salad. To get that deal, here's what you got to do. You got to show proof of military service, like an ID or your DD-214. I got to start carrying my DD-214 around with me, man. You can get in on all these discounts. Now, the cost to join or renew a membership is $45 or $100 for the Sam's Club Plus Membership. Additionally, Walmart and Sam's Club recently celebrated the fifth anniversary of their Welcome Home commitment by announcing the hiring of more than 200,000 veterans. The retail giants are more than 80% of the way to reaching their goal of hiring a 250,000 vets by 2020. Now, if you're wondering if there's a Sam's Club near you, probably. There's 597 of the clubs in 44 states, so that's, that's a pretty large number of them. You're listening to a pretty large number of veterans' issues here on The Morning Briefing. Coming up next, Jake Hughes sits down with SWAN, the Service Women's Action Network, to talk to them about their inaugural meeting of the Military Women's Coalition. Morning Briefing, back after
2: this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Vets. Every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Morning Briefing. Super producer JQ's is here sitting in the driver's seat because host Eric Dame is off doing some secret squirrel stuff. And honestly, I could tell you about it, but I'd have to kill you. I'm kidding. He's just doing some fantastic stuff over there for ConnectingVets.com, which you can find out about later. Remember, ConnectingVets.com is your website, your one-stop shop for all things military and veteran-related. And make sure you follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us. You'll get the latest and greatest news going on in the veteran and military community. You'll know exactly when things pop off because we stay on top of these things because, well, you know, that's our job. So follow us. Do it now. Okay. We talk a lot, obviously, about veterans on this show, but there's certain groups that sometimes I don't want to say get forgotten, but they they need sometimes need to take the center stage. And today we're talking about women veterans and I'm joined by three very intelligent ladies who are going to help me talk about a new thing coming up called the Military Women's Coalition. Now, this is a lot of names and titles, so make sure I get through everything. First, we have Dr. Ellen Herring, who is the Service Women's Action Network Director of Programs and Research, correct? Yes, that's it. Okay, we have Dr. Joanne Fisher, founder of the Women Veterans United Committee Incorporated. Yes. Uh, Could you speak into the microphone? Yes. Okay, thank you. And on the phone, we have Bridget McCoy of the Women Veterans Social Justice Network. How are you doing, Bridget?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for
2: having me. Well, we're happy to have you here. Thank you very much. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And I'd like to start by having you three sort of introduce yourselves and your organizations that you represent, because you you all represent different organizations dedicated to helping women veterans. I think that's important. So, uh, Dr. Harding, we'll start with you. Could you give me an overview of your group?
3: Yes, sure. I work for the Service Women's Action Network. It's an organization that's been around. It was founded in 2007 by a group of women veterans who were having trouble getting their um, VA claims processed. They decided to form an organization in New York City. That organization became national. Um, today we now have about, uh, actually we have over 8,000 members and about 30,000 uh, social media followers. Our mission is to connect and advocate for service women past, present, and future.
2: Okay, awesome. Now, uh, Dr. Fisher with the Women Veterans United Committee Incorporated. What, tell me about that.
4: It's a very dynamic uh, group. We, we we don't have any members. We only have a board of directors, and we were formed by an, or, an organization says, "Go out and form your own group of women veterans of what you want to do." And we came together, and our mission is to work and to work with our women veterans to help them get better benefits, quality service, and coming together with this coalition is increasing our our being recognized and learning how to do more things legislatively to help our women veterans.
2: Okay. And, uh, Bridgette, you are with the Women Veterans Social Justice Network. Exactly what is that?
0: Uh, so Women Veterans Social Justice Network is an online social impact and community engagement nonprofit. We were founded by myself, uh, I'm a survivor of sexual assault in the military. I experienced homelessness and a lot of the things that are on the fringe of our community that we may discuss today. And so our mission is to identify, connect, and empower through social, professional, and, per- and personal connections. We use technology, tech-enabled um, connections and information sharing online. We have a digital footprint of about 12,000, but we are an integrated network of other networks of women veteran organizations and community engagement uh, support organizations and so all of those come together to basically get information out uh to have peer support uh, advance women veterans narratives across the nation
2: Okay, awesome. Now, we all know, as I said, you're here to talk about something you all came together to form, and it's not just y'all. I have a list. There's a list of eight different groups, uh, Women in Military Service to America, Protect Our Defenders, Final Salute Incorporated, GA Military Women, and several others. Uh, Why did you decide that you had to come together to form this military women's coalition?
3: Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll... Answer that question. Thank you, Jake. Okay. Um, in 2017, we, Swan began researching the organizations that were out there that were serving service women. What we discovered is there, that there are over 150. Um, what, what surprised us is a lot of them are tiny, small organizations um, like Dr. Fisher's, and we thought that there, there might be power in uniting all these organizations that serve service women into a single coalition. So after looking at how many and realizing um, what the landscape was, we invited some of the most active organizations to form an advisory group. And the the list of names that you just um, read represents our advisory group. We uh, met in April, and we were very excited, actually, by the interest. Everybody said, yes, absolutely, we need to do this. Um, So the leaders of those eight organizations are now meeting monthly, and we are going to have an inaugural event in Atlanta on September 7th. Um, I will let them talk to you about why they thought that a coalition was necessary. But before they do, let me just say that in May we we got together and we actually drafted a mission statement for the coalition. And I'll I'll read that. The Military Women's Coalition is a national group of formal and informal organizations who work collaboratively, collaboratively to serve and support U.S. active duty guard, reserve, Veteran and retired service women by uniting and elevating our voices to influence policy and improve our well being. Okay. Dr. Fisher, do you want to talk about why you joined?
4: Yes, this was very important to my particular group because we want to be heard. We want to be heard legislatively when we want to be heard in Annapolis because we're in Maryland. And then we also want to be heard nationally and going on the Hill. And I felt that working with SWAN, they had more knowledge as to how to do things legislatively. Uh, we have one of their people to come into our group to assist us with preparing. Uh, we're doing a summit now to organize so that we can gather our voice to be heard and this coalition is giving us even more strength, more power, more push, know how, how to do things, how to reach out. We must organize, we must come forward. This is powerful and it's very needed. Okay,
2: Rajette, uh, you want to know why uh, you wanna tell us why you got involved with this whole thing?
0: Well, Women Veterans Social Justice Network has always wanted to connect multiple organizations that support women veterans. Um, we didn't see the um, the, the uh, possibility that um, we could do this in a way that would you know collectively bring our voices and um, a national uh, from a national audience point of view to legislation um, our our programming had been from a grassroots kind of like let's get women veterans to speak up let's get women veterans to um, tell their narrative and let's Help women veterans have peers, and so this is a you know and you know a natural progression in in this process, so we wanted to be you know right there supporting um the the process being a voice so that people knew that this was a safe place to land because a lot of um in just in in you know the historical context of what's going on we've had a lot of organizations come together and do different things. And sometimes it wasn't a safe place to land, and sometimes it, there there were challenges within um, women's voices actually being heard um, for their narrative, and not the, the, uh, a narrative being you know bits and pieces taken and then not actually hearing the voice of that 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 veteran. So um, we got involved. Um, I I felt that it was important to just be a a, um, a beacon or a you know standard bearer to say hey. You know, we've checked this out. This is going to be a great thing. And we all, even though we may have different points of view that we're coming from, this is something to elevate our voices, have um, legislative power, and, you know, be able to be a force in the community. Because I think with the women veteran being a, a, a you know, um, we're the fastest growing, but we are, you know, 2.2, I think it is 2.2 million uh, within the community of veteran. Um, and so I think that a lot of times our, our, the challenges we have get kind of lost in the grand scheme of things, especially when you start breaking down eras of service time and then, you know, whether somebody was in combat or not in combat and all of these other things. So um, to bring all of these voices together, everyone who's ever served in any time, in any branch, in any conflict, together women veteran military currently serving I think this is a, a, a very beautiful synergistic um, welcomed uh, 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 coalition so that's why I, I you know I felt like we should be involved
2: okay now I'm gonna ask a question that is on the surface is gonna seem completely obvious and a dumb question but I feel like it needs to be said because in the military, especially during my 13 years in in the army, I always worked to see everyone as equal. I didn't see race. I didn't see gender. I saw soldiers. So why is it, knowing that, why is it important that we have this special focus on women veterans? Like, w- w- what specific issues do they face that are not faced by, say, males?
3: Yeah, so um, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of um men don't think or don't believe that women are marginalized uh, population within the military and they don't see that there might be a problem that they face but the reality our our everyday lived lives in the military was one of um, harassment Um, you see that certainly in the sexual assault numbers and the problem of sexual assault in the the military i think women are harassed frequently, constantly, um, in small, minor ways. I call it a death by a thousand little cuts, little snide comments, jokes at your expense, um, jobs that you don't necessarily get, that you think you're just as competitive for, um, and these things add up over time. And then when women become veterans and they seek out veteran support organizations to join them, in fact, we did a research project on this last year and found that women don't join veteran support organizations at the same rate as men. And when you ask them why, they say they don't feel welcome in them. Um, those and in fact, my organization was formed after the women veterans had joined uh, a, a larger organization and didn't think that they're. Um, that their needs were being addressed by the organization. So they broke away from that larger uh, VSO. And that's why women veterans, both inside and outside the military, think we're treated differently. We believe we're treated differently. We know from the data in terms of harassment and assault that, in fact, women are treated differently. Um, So I think that's why we formed our own organizations that are separate from the men's organizations. And now we're trying to unite and create a more powerful voice.
4: I also have something very serious to say. Yes. Okay. I'd like to piggyback on what she's saying about the VSOs, veteran service organizations. They are led by predominantly white males. The males are older and younger, and if they do have women, the women may have Lower positions, and that also goes with pay because in these positions they are paid. This is important for when they go on hill or go on the hill, they're the ones who talk about our issues. We may have a, uh, an input, but they're leading that. Also, when it comes down to us filing our claims, there some of them are not sensitive to what we are doing. We must have women there. They must be trained to have sensitivity, the men and the women, for dealing with us. We must see women join these organizations, be comfortable. And and put into key positions. Do not look at a veteran service organization because it has a leader at the top who is a woman and we think that we have overcome. We have not because you have to look deeper into the organization to see for yourself that it is still male oriented and the environment is male. We need to make a change.
0: And if I can add as well, um, um, both of my colleagues have definitely expressed feelings that I have um, and, ha- and have experienced personally. And then again, our part, people in our community have experienced those things as well. When, uh, you know, everyone says that it's equal, and I love that we have a feeling of camaraderie within the military, but we have to go back to, again, historical context. Women had to be congressionally mandated through legislation. Congress, Congress had to vote to allow women to serve, right? Same thing with combat. We had to be allowed to serve through alleg- you know you know through legislation for it to be honored at the same level as our, our uh, male counterparts, and so I think that although we say that that things are equal, um, the, the treatment is not equitable because even when women come into the VSOs, many times they are relegated to, um, and marginalized to serve in the auxiliary because of their um, gender not because of their uh, military service and so if we start having the conversation about you know um, things are equal um, just as my colleague just said you know as as it relates to color same thing men and women of color had to be congressionally mandated to be allowed to serve i mean so these are these things are um inherent within the system and so if they're already there we may not know you know others may not see the bias that's already there and how um, women are being treated but trust and believe we feel that energy when we come into that space um, again we're not welcomed at the same level our as our male counterparts and we for sure are not honored at the same level um, especially when you look at funding you know what things are being funded but the percentages are based on the need, those kinds of things. I mean, across the country, we're just now getting um, homeless veteran women communities launched and, and, and funded appropriately. So these are, these are all things that if you just kind of look along the lines of the uh, statistics and the research, and then you listen to the voices of the women who have served, who we say, we've got, you've got my six. Well, I'm saying we're not being treated fairly. So, what are we going to be? We're going to do about that. And so that's why I think the coalition is very, very important. I think that it, you know, um, you know, everyone who is anyone working in the community needs to not only be a part of but support the coalition. So um, it's it's very, very important and that our voices um, be heard in positions of authorities as the trusted leaders and not brought into a board meeting have a conversation and then take our information and then someone else presented we need to be sitting at those seats alongside our brothers who are talking about our issues before congress also, and that has not happened in a consistent in, uh, in a consistent way within our community leaders
4: also i'd like to say just one last Go good one last thing uh, everyone has to look at claims women's claims Our claims that we file for our service injuries, they must be reexamined carefully. We need to make sure that we have adequate research and representation to make sure that women's claims are given priority, serviced, and addressed. We have to be at the table. We must make a difference because it also refers to money. A lot of women are homeless, and they have no money. Having their claims taken care of speedily, correctly accurately and filed will make a difference in them having money so that this will help to assist in addressing their financial needs thank
2: you Absolutely. And I think I asked my own question from earlier is that these are the kind of things what you're saying is it's the kind of thing that myself, you know, corn fed white boy from Texas that I need to hear because I don't see or notice these things. And I think that's what you're right. That's why it's important. We get more women in involved in the process. Now, a question I want to know is since you've been active in Swan and your group and all, all your groups, have you had any other re- interaction with the other large VSOs like the American Legion, the Veteran Foreign Wars, and Vets, or all any of these groups? And has the reception been cool, warm? How has that interaction been?
0: Well, I think so, this is Bridget. Yeah, go ahead, Bridget. Oh. So this is Bridget. I am a member of or- many of those types those organizations and have been. Um, I've done work with. Uh, some of the major um, VSOs and and had them support different initiatives. In a general way, it is about membership. Um, most of the times, their intersection with uh, the work that I've done has been about you know we want more women veterans to to join our institution. We know you have women that participate with you. Can you you know can we participate with you so we can we can bring in more numbers of women. As far as saying, you know, let's do some listening sessions. Let's have some 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 things that we can do within our agency without necessarily gaining membership. But let's do some things within our agency to support women veterans in general. Um, More, you know, that over the over time that has that has changed. But in the beginning, maybe the last seven or eight years, it 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 was not true. So um, I think a lot of the organizations are recognizing that uh, women. Voices need to be heard. But again, because the hierarchical structure of the, the organizations and how, you know, the congressional um, processes happen with how they are chartered, they, the way that they can uh, approach that has been um, just just hasn't been at the level of the you know impact that women vets can make within their agency they have people that are leaders they they want to support us but i don't see them bringing us like i said my colleague said you know bringing us to the table at this at the in the positions of authority um just giving somebody the the, a, a title isn't helpful the position of authority means being able to speak from your own experience and from the experience of the women veteran and bring those things forward in a way that's going to be meaningful for the population, not just as a figurehead. And I'm not saying anything negative about it, any, any role. I'm just saying that you can't just be a figurehead. Like we just, we, we've brought someone in and they're a woman veteran. It has to be somebody who can accurately and appropriately speak to the challenges and needs of women veterans across a spectrum of service, not just one era, not just one type or, or group or anything like that. So, um,
3: I'd like to give a like a concrete example. Okay. Um, A SWAN member described this to us. She got back from Iraq. She was uh, eventually medically discharged for the uh, injuries that she sustained. Um, She went into her local VFW looking for support, and she said she walked into what was basically a smoky beer hall, about 10 dudes sitting around a, a, a bar, turned around and stared at her, and she said she looked at them and walked right back out that door. She's a black woman, Um, in a in a rural area she did not feel welcome or comfortable there and it just it didn't meet the needs that she that she had at the time for community and these some of the organizations have made change they've um, changed their programming to support women but many and I would say actually most have not for example if you host an event and you invite veterans and you don't provide childcare any woman who has children is not going to be um, welcome at that event, or she's going to find it difficult to attend. Right. So you've got to you've got to adjust your programming that will support women. Um, and that makes them feel welcome and included. You know, I'm not going to go to a smoky beer hall either to hang out with a bunch mm. of guys.
2: If it makes you I'm, feel better, I wouldn't either. Oh, I'm well, not that type of guy. So
3: <laughs>
4: sorry. All right, go ahead. Go ahead, ma'am. I have something to say. I yes. Like, I like smoky beer halls. I, to, I to like bars. Please invite me to your bar. I'm sorry, I like bars. But I do want you to know, I'm very, very heavily involved with the uh, with the VSOs in Maryland. I'm on the Joint Veterans Committee of Maryland. Uh, I'm the chair of the Women Veterans Committee. I do massive events. I work with them. I talk to them. I'm there. Everything that you're saying is true, and sensitivity has to be developed. We have all gone down to Annapolis. We've presented events for women so they could actually speak. And the men were able to learn about women and how to simply interact with them. This has to be this has to be taken deeper into the organization. So this is just scratching the surface. But I haven't left. I've not I've, I've been with the uh, veteran service organizations now almost 30 years. I've had a very hard time. And at one time I was given mentors, male, the, the good old boy club mentors uh, <laughs> to uh, to do my doctorate. And you know what? They they trained me. They showed me. They worked with me. And I learned and had I have less problems than I did, did before. And I'm stronger for it. But what you're talking about does exist. But I don't plan to run for that. I'm in the midst. I will stay there. And I love their clubs. I love all the pizza and everything. But I do <laughs> like that. And I will not leave. And I will make a change. Thank you.
2: Awesome. Awesome. I like that. Uh, Okay, so what do you think uh, is—we're running a little short on time, but we can continue this if we have to, because this is a fascinating Uh, conversation—what do you think is the most important issue facing women veterans today? Like, if you had—I know there's multiple—if you had to narrow it down, what would you say is the biggest problem women veterans face?
3: Well, one of the things we did as we started to form this coalition was we—we—we designed a survey and we sent it to all these organizations. We've now had 45 organizations respond and that was one of the questions we asked them. Um, We said, what are the top three um, issues that a national coalition should should address? The number one response from the 45 organizations was military sexual assault and harassment. The second one was military and VA culture change. And the third one was healthcare access and mental health of women uh, active duty and women veterans. So I think the organizations themselves have, have spoken. This is what we think as a community are our top challenges. So military harassment and assault, um, culture within the military and the VA, and then, of course, health care access as well as mental health.
4: I agree. I have nothing else to say because I agree. I support SWAN and I support them because they're addressing the issues that are also important to us, Loon Veterans United Committee Incorporated, and that's why I'm here.
2: Would you have anything to add?
0: Absolutely. The coalition, um, I'm absolutely supportive of the coalition, uh, us bringing all of the organizations together um, to strengthen. Many of the organizations that are on, <clears throat> that have come on board are, are attacking these issues I- individually. And so bringing us all together with one unified voice, moving forward together um, makes such a difference. Um, and, and so I'm very... Uh, I'm, I'm actually very happy that uh, this is moving forward so quickly because it's it's, it's, it's been needed for such a time, such, such a long time. So uh, uh, this is all great, and I'm just honored to be here with, with both of my colleagues here. Today.
2: You're listening to The Morning Briefing. I'm Super Producer Jake Hughes. We will return with more of our conversation with Dr. Ellen Herring, Dr. Joanne Fisher, and Bridget McCoy right after this. Stick around. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing. Super producer Jay Q is here. Here's part two of our interview with Dr. Ellen Herring, Dr. Joanne Fisher, and Bridget McCoy of the Military Women's Coalition. So uh, remind me again, when is your the inaugural meeting?
3: Yeah, so we'd like to issue today a call to action. If you're an organization that serves military women and women veterans, join us in Atlanta on September 7th at our inaugural meeting of the Military Women's Coalition. It will be held at the offices of King and Spaulding. It's a law firm in Atlanta that has agreed to host us. They're at 1180 Peachtree Street, Peach Street Northeast, Atlanta. We'll be there from 10 to 3 p.m. on the 7th of September. And if you visit any of our organization's websites, you will be able to find more information about our inaugural meeting. Um, and there'll be a registration links at our websites.
4: Also, I like to say to all of you out there come, you must come. I do not drive, I don't know how. I very seldomly fire planes. I'm going by Greyhound. A plane has not fallen on my Greyhound yet. I'm calling. (laughs) I'm going down there by Greyhound. I'm coming back because I have another event to be at. If I can go down there by Greyhound, for those of you who have little money, catch the Greyhound and meet me down there. We must show up. There is no reason why you should not be there. Come by yourself and take the word back. And organizations, show up. We need you. This is a must call to arms.
2: Were you ever a drill sergeant? Because you're motivating. You make me want get, to get on a Greyhound and go down there. <laughs> I'm sorry, Brigitte. Did you have something to add?
0: Yeah. I, I again. I just mirror the the, state, the sentiments um, that have been expressed before. I think that uh, you know I'm here in Atlanta, so lucky me. I don't have to do anything but uh, you know carpool with someone. But I think that if 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 anything any if you've gone to any event all year long, um, this is an event that sh- that everyone should be uh, a part of. Coming, you know, not just um, women veteran just coming. I think that anyone who's in leadership, who has a, a, a voice of authority in leadership roles, should be coming and participating because it's very important for not only our male colleagues who are veteran, but also our um, our civically engaged uh, civilians who want to support veteran groups because. The only way that we're going to move this, this this ball forward or move the needle is is by having all of these uh, communities intersect in support in support of women veterans because that has been the other challenge. We do a lot of work to move things forward, but we don't have any other voices in any other realm speaking to help us move that that, that conversation forward within their their area of expertise. So, um, I would say you know, and I and and, and forgive me if I'm overstepping um, with, with the coalition, but I would. You know, I would say that we need people like yourself um, who are supportive of the movement and want to, you know, see your sisters supported well. You know, we need your voices to also help support. And so we need those voices coming as well to be a part of, of the support system. So. If if anything that I would add, it would be that. But everything else, I'm in complete agreement with, with, uh, like I said, my colleagues. Because that's if I can just break away for a second and say that that for WBSJ has been one of the the most um, supportive things. I think I think that. uh, you know, in in the greater aspect of things, having our male counterparts come and say, you know what, I didn't realize this was a problem, but because I'm a leader in my community and I now know that it is a problem, I'm going to actively um, and appropriately support alongside of my sister veteran who served. And so that, those that's a that's a that's a narrative we also need in this process because as more of our brothers. Stand up and support us. As more of the community say, "Hey, yeah, we need to hear from our women veteran, We need to hear from our military women." That is going to shift the culture um, e- even more quickly. So, uh, I think that, like in in this case, you heard some things that you were not aware of. I think that others need to as well. They need to hear these things so that they can they can help shift culture too. Okay.
2: Uh, let's keep going. We can make this a two part segment. because uh, I want to ask. Okay, you have this coalition going on, and you meet up in se- in September, and you do all this stuff. What's the future of this organization? How do you? How are you going to operate within the sphere of the veteran community?
3: So there have been uh, coalitions before. In fact, Swan is a member of the military coalition. Um, there are different coalition models and we don't really know what our model will be yet. That's one of the purposes of the inaugural meeting is to get these organizations together to present some ex- uh, some possible models um, to see who's willing to commit how much in terms of resources and time and then we've got to figure out next steps. And so the inaugural meeting will be the beginning of the next steps and of course our advisory group we've done some of the, the pieces of that already with the survey. Um, what do these organizations care about? In our survey, we've also asked the organizations, what is it you do for service women? And so we've actually found that there are some gaps in service in terms of what organizations are providing versus what we think is, is needed. For example, there are 19 organizations working on um, providing hiring and training and education services. And yet we say that the number one topic that needs to be addressed is military uh, sexual assault and harassment. And yet we don't have that many organizations that actually are working on that topic. So these are the kinds of things we, we've got to figure this out. Those are next steps. We actually have a, uh, a coalition advisor on board right now. She is coaching us through the formation of co- coalitions. She's oh, wow. A, she's a professor who is um, a skilled and knowledgeable about how coalitions form. What do they do? What, what are the next steps? So, awesome. we, so we don't know for sure okay. <laughs> at this point.
2: Right? You're still forming. It's all good. It's all right. good. So, um, you mentioned that one that the number one most okay. What well, what's what I'm looking for? Not complained about, but reported issue for female veterans is the sexual assault, sexual harassment. How do you think? We can go about changing that because I know in the Army they have all these programs. They have the SHARP program. They have SAVE, I think, is in the Marine Corps and all these other groups. Do you feel that more, if more needs to be done, what could be done?
3: I let uh, Bridget start because that's her, that's really where she works.
0: Okay. So, rape is a crime. Uh, if, when rape, you know, is appropriately prosecuted in the military, and the perpetrators are exited out of the military in a way that um, for lack of a better term it shames them and their honor of military service is no longer um, held Uh, i think that that's 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 again a culture change part that that we need you know i'm not a, a lawyer i'm a sexual assault survivor so i have my own personal feelings about how Um, you know, how we should be handling this process related to, um, you know, exiting people out of the military. We should not be supporting them with promotions and, you know, uh, more opportunities to lead. They should be swiftly removed from the military with no honor and put on a a registry.
2: Right, right. That
0: being said, (laughs) that being said, Organizations like Protect Our Defenders, which are on an advisory board with them, and they are part of the coalition um, as well, um, I, you know, I um, go for their leadership as it relates to the, you know, the prosec- prosecuting, pro- you know, part of, uh, of um, <clears throat> you know, the, the military sexual trauma and how it should be handled legally. Um, within, uh, you know, the administrative uh, court system, UCMJ system. So uh, when you say, you know, ask me, you know, what do I feel about it and what I think about it, you know, I we have to have, like, we have had to have legislation for, you know, women to serve. Oddly, we have to have legislation to get rapists out of the military. Um, I am um, more focused on the serial rapists because there are, some challenges with people saying, Well what if this didn't happen and all of these other things. But we do have we do have history of there are some uh people who serve in the military who have a history, a long standing history of uh, you know, repeated uh, sexual harassment, repeated uh sexual assault. So right. uh, in in that case I want, you know, those types of things to happen to you know, those changes. But on the other end, I need again for our brother to understand that sexual assault in the military does not just happen to women. That is not just a women veteran issue. It is a, is a military issue. Men are being um, injured in the military through sexual harassment and assault. So, you know, um, as a survivor, um, I, I, I see the post, I hear the, the, um, the call for women from, and men who have served as far back as Vietnam, and so these these challenges are across the spectrum so it's not just one one area of service it's not just one group of people it's not just one location and so if we're going to uh, solve the problem we have to change the culture we have to have appropriate measures in the VA so that the healthcare access supports both communities which male and female and i know we're talking about women but i i just have to interjects that part because I, I feel like as long as we talk about it from just a woman veteran or military woman point of view, we will never get to the point of accurately um, getting uh, treatment and accurate legislation for, um, you know, to, to, to protect those who've, who've been injured and to stop it from happening in the military. Most all of us have served or worked with people who have served and everything in the military has been mission essential. If it, if it needs to be changed, it's mission essential. And unfortunately, I have not seen that type of culture shift within the military to say this is it's mission essential to stop rape in the military. It's mission essential to stop harassment in the military. And until that happens, we're going to continue to have uh, these challenges. Um, I'm sure my colleagues have other very specific statistical portions to to talk about, but from my perspective. I wanted to bring that voice to the to the table, that narrative to the table, because I think that those are those are important things that have to happen um, within the within the larger part of uh, culture change and MST and health healthcare that, ha- that has to happen so that we can feel supported and in a holistic way within um, within the uh, within the community.
4: So I would like to say something. What? Everybody's talking about now. I'm from a different generation. I'm not from the now, now with time. Think about all of the women who served, the nurses and women who were in the military who served throughout history and time. Some of them are still alive and have taken their rape and abuse to their grave. They, they Even some of the men, that needs to be brought forth They need to be given an opportunity to address these issues because now the VA and also my organization is looking at addressing the whole woman and not just women of today. We have to look at back in the history of some of the things that have been horrible that have happened to men and women for the women as well as the men when they come forward. They should be able to file claims, and they must be encouraged to. Some of us may have to go out to nursing homes and places to help these women. And even for the men, and you got to remember when change is made, a lot of the positive changes that are made affect men, so they won't be left behind. So I focus right. on women veteran issues because when the doors are open, the men can walk through with them. We must look out for our women veterans and open the door so our men can come through but I'm telling you with all of this military sexual trauma and all of this stuff that's going on now it has happened throughout history and we must encourage our seniors to walk through that door and lead the pathway for our younger women and make it safer and come through with their stories I want to hear your stories I want you to get your benefits I want your families to know so they can make a difference thank you
3: yeah, so I'd like to um, kind of backtrack a little to this year's SAPR report. This year, the DOD released its sexual, annual sexual assault report. Um, and what the report shows is that reporting, uh, reporting is going up um, or incidents are going up. And at the same time, though, that the number of sexual assaults has gone up, the number of prosecutions and convictions have has steadily gone down. Um, That represents a problem. But your initial question was, what do we need to do to change this problem within the military? Um, Years ago, when we had a problem with drugs in the military, what did we do in the mid-80s? I remember when we introduced um, urinalysis, and that dramatically changed the the, um, drug use culture in the military. It it went away. Um, It didn't go away completely, and of course, we still drug test to make sure. And then we had a zero tolerance. You come up hot, you're gone. Um, maybe you're gone with a second hot, but it would really depend on your, um, your performance. What if we did, if you've been accused of harassment or assault, we polygraph people, we polygraph them. And if you're, you've got a positive polygraph, boom, you're out. We have never introduced anything like that to try to eradicate these serial harassers or sexual assault, um, perpetrators in our military. But that would be a way to get rid of those type of people just like we get rid of drug users
2: yeah it's just amazing to me that there's never been that sort of zero tolerance policy for because I've I've I haven't seen but I've known or heard stories of people that it's systemic where they'll go from unit to unit and you hear stories of I know this guy and he did this and he did this and I mean it just it, it's disturbing because you don't want to work for these people because they create this environment where you can't afford probably affect your mission because you're always looking over your shoulder and i think exactly and it's just it's very disturbing now uh i want to switch gears just a little bit i we mentioned before that women are the fastest growing veteran population now as i understand it they're also the fastest growing homeless veteran population and what do you think needs to be done to solve the issue of female homeless veterans
0: it was interesting that Dr. Joanne, uh Fisher, she was saying that our claims need to be uh, properly adjudicated. For my, again, I was homeless off and on for 10 years. I'm an MST survivor. We know that, and, and, and I'm not the stats person, but I do know that the stats exist that show that, if, you know, that women who have experienced homelessness, there's a correlation between that and MST, military sexual trauma. And so, you know, when when we're talking about the the, you know, it, it becomes this gauntlet. You, you're one. You're not believed because you're you you say you're you've experienced sexual harassment or trauma in the military. You got to file a claim. You file a claim. One in three military sexual trauma claims were being properly adjudicated. So three claims went forward. One would get approved. That was it. And that number was very different for a combat veterans. So. And someone may have the numbers for that. And so when you start talking about that that type of situation where, one, you have a medical, an untreated medical condition, two, you're more likely than not are not being paid or working in a field that is financially going to help you take care of you and your family. And then on top of that, you're fighting a system um, that where funds should be you know, coming to you through through this process, you know, the claims, the disability claims system, um, you're not getting those those funds. And so, in my case, um, poverty became the issue, and then homelessness came after that. Taking care of my kids and not having the the resources to get the medical treatment and all of those things. And so, it, it is not just one thing. But if we knock down each one of these pillars um, that are that are um, challenges to to the healthcare, challenges to getting your claim appropriately adjudicated, challenges to getting the appropriate health, uh, housing. Um, again, disabled, I was put in the HUD-VASH program on the third floor, and I would use a cane <laughs> at that time. I was using a cane, so again, these all of these things become more and more challenges, you know, not having childcare to get to my doctor's appointment. All of these things are challenges, and so what happens is we get tired because you already are um, having challenges with your medical, and so emotional is challenged and PTSD is exacerbated. And so if we can move forward in ways that actively support the uh, you know appropriate process um, put in place to support you know women coming forward um, as Dr. Fisher said to to tell their narratives. Um, As far back as World War II women are coming forward and saying, you know, um, you know, these are things that I've experienced and being believed and not shunned when they come in those offices to those VSOs who, again, we're going back, go back to the same thing we talked about, who are not, aren't already prepared. But now we've prepared them. They know what to be asking, what, to, what information needs to be brought forward. WVSJ has done a great job of bringing national um, leadership from the VA, VBA, to teach women veteran um, community leaders how to appropriately process claims, just given the information. It's on a website. We have it on demand. Um, you can go to the website and look at the information, and so it's, it's there. But we need, you know, nobody knows that's there. So we need that information out more. We need more of those types of conversations happening because that is one of the main areas that for me, I was smart enough. I had enough talent. I could get a job, but I had medical conditions. And then I was fighting my claim all of those years. It took me um, like 22 years total to get appropriate, you know, compensation. It took eight years of, of being unemployed and homeless. It shouldn't take that much from someone that you say, thank you for your service. And I say, don't tell me thank you for my service. And then don't vote and support projects and services and funding for veteran women, especially related to housing. All of these things are, they're cumulative. And so these are the things that I'm hoping that you know, um, the show will bring forward. You will be able to go out and talk about. But also that the coalition, as both of my colleagues on on here are talking about, that the coalition is going to, you know, be able to, you know, bring these 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 pointed out that it's not just Bridget saying it. Because sometimes I feel like, you know, like my colleagues probably do. I'm just the one beating the drum saying, okay, it's it's happening. People are like, yeah, that's her. She's just constantly saying that. But now that they're hearing it from a larger body of witnesses saying, yes, this is not just happening in one little small community. This is a, a overarching challenge within our community.
4: Also, I would like to say I must encourage our seniors, come out and support our young people. Don't let them stand out here, our young women stand out here, yeah. and talk about this. You come out, you tell your stories, you stand with us, you file your claims, and you've got to remember that when you stand up, You will open the door for these women, but also for men. And you've got to remember, look at the children that are coming behind these people because they are parents. We must make a way for our young people to survive in the military. Come out. Don't sit at home. Even if you have to come in a wheelchair, you have to be carried and escorted and come with your canes. Come to this coalition. Mm -hmm. You must support us.
2: Yeah, it's important because when, because ch- you mentioned children and then they see how their parents or grandparents are being treated by, quote unquote, the system. And so that taints their view of if we want to, you know, of how they're going to view the VA or all these other organizations. So, okay, we really are running short on time this time. So uh, I'm going <laughs> to end by asking if people want to learn more about the Military Women's Coalition. How can they do that?
3: So they can visit the Service Women's Action Network website or any of our websites. Um, frankly, we will have posted by the end of today, a registration link, and as we get more information about our agenda, we will post that as well. We will have speakers, but we're also gonna have, it's, it's really much more of a, a working session where we will be trying to figure out how this coalition is going to move forward. You know, what issues are we going to address? What organizations are willing to provide resources? So that's going to be our the, the main effort of the Atlanta conference.
2: Okay. And to remind everyone, the Women's Conference is going to be on September 7th in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, at 1180 Peachtree Street Northeast. And if people can't make it, where can they find more information about it?
3: Well, that's a good question. Um, we've talked about possibly live streaming it in some oh. fashion um, if for, for organizations that can't make it. Because it is exp- if you live on the West Coast, that's gonna be expensive. Although I will say we are working on travel stipends now to support smaller organizations. Um, we we anticipate having at least 10 travel stipends so that we can bring in some of those smaller organizations that don't have a budget. Um, and we're, we're writing grants right now so that we can expand that. Because we really wanna include everybody.
2: Okay. So we talked about Swan, Uh, Dr. Fisher, if people want to learn more about the Women Veteran United Committee Incorporated, where can they go?
4: They can go to www.wvucinc.org. www.wvucinc.org. Come online.
2: Okay, and uh, Rajette, if people want to learn more about the Women Veteran Social Justice Network, where do they go?
0: They can go to WVSJnetwork.org, or they can just Google Bridget McCoy, and pretty much the information will come up. Um, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're also on Pinterest, um, Flickr. So all of those are, are there. So WVSJnetwork.org or just Google okay. Women Veterans Social Justice Network.
2: Okay, and when this conference happens in uh, in September – I really hope y'all remember us and come back so we can get more information and get your message out there so we can do our part to help women veterans. Uh, I want to thank y'all so, so much for coming here. Dr. Ellen Herring, Dr. Joanne Fisher, Bridgette McCoy. Thank you so much for being here. It was a great conversation. You're listening to The Morning Briefing, and we shall return right after this. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets.
1: Welcome back to The Morning Briefing, Thursday edition. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And on today's show, we've already had some fantastic guests. We've been speaking to the Service Women's Action Network. We've talked the headlines. And now it is time to talk vets. But before we do that, I want to remind you that ConnectingVets.com That's your website. If you're a veteran, the family member, the friend of a veteran, there's information on that site for you. Information that can help you live your best life as a veteran, as a veteran's spouse, as someone who just is interested in veterans' issues. Our entire site is staffed by veterans who know what it's like to wear the uniform and know what it's like to take that uniform off for the last time, putting out great stories, including the ones we've already talked about today. You'll be able to get more detail about those by visiting ConnectingVets.com. Want to learn more about that horrible story about the veteran setting himself on fire down in Georgia? You can find out about it there. How about that veteran and his service dog not being allowed on a bus in New Mexico? And we've got that too. And of course, quite a bit of coverage on the confirmation hearing just yesterday of Robert Wilkie for Secretary of the VA. All available on ConnectingVets.com and also on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. As I mentioned, it is Thursday, and it is time to talk to our friends over at AmVets about everything that they are doing and what they are focusing on. Typically, we get that old Marie and Joe Chanelli to come in here. He and I have known each other for, oh, I don't know, 20 years or so now. But today, we get a nice break from Joe because Lana McKenzie, who is actually heading up The medical department over at AMVETS is the chief medical executive and the leader of the AMVETS HEAL program, joins us in studio now. Lana, good morning. How are you today?
5: Good morning. Thank you.
1: As I mentioned, chief medical executive and head of the HEAL program at AMVETS. Your background is in medicine, as I understand it. You are, in fact, a nurse who has experience working in the VA system. You also worked for Paralyzed Veterans of America. Tell us about your background and your connection to the military and veteran community.
5: Well, my background, just like you say, I'm a registered nurse. Um, I graduated from Loma Linda University in Southern California. I started my career at the VA uh, in spinal cord injury service, taking care of veterans for about 10 years. Uh, Transitioned over to be an advocate um, at Paralyzed Veterans of America. I was the associate executive director for about over 15 years. Uh, I transitioned over to uh, American Veteran as you introduced AMVET uh, this past year to lead the HEAL program.
1: When it comes to having worked in that field, in the medical field, and now being an advocate for it, two things that are tied closely together, but do you miss the actual practicing of medicine as a registered nurse with those veterans who are dealing with those spinal cord injuries?
5: You know, once in a while, I miss uh, being in the actions with uh, patients and the nurses. But nurses, um, naturally, we're an advocate. Yeah. We're advocate at the bedside, and we're advocate at a um, higher level, like what I'm doing right now, shaping policy, and hopefully the care that delivered the, the bedside being impacted by the policy we make. Um, you know, obviously, in every occupation, you look back and you miss Some of the memory, but I am very thrilled to be able to do what I'm doing now to give back to the veteran community.
1: And we're going to talk about everything that AMVETS is doing through the HEAL program. We're going to talk about the Robert Wilkie confirmation hearing and so much more with Lana McKenzie, who is the executive chief medical executive for AMVETS and heads up the HEAL program. Having worked for the VA for 10 years, I'm sure you saw some things that you wanted changed back then. That was uh, a little while ago that you worked at the VA. Looking back to the time when you you had your last day at the VA, between then and now, how would you rate the progress in what's been done at the VA to improve care for our veterans?
5: You know, um, I was privileged enough to be able to touch veterans at the bedside and understand the complexity at the healthcare system that the VA uh, is operating. Um, Looking back, since 1997, I left the VA, came to Washington, D.C., um, there's huge improvement um, in terms of research, in terms of understanding the complexity of veteran who sustain uh, spinal cord injury, uh, traumatic brain injury, um, the the care that uh, compare between the VA and the private sector. Um, I, I mean, I, I get to see the difference in that perspective. Um, Although there's improvement, there's a lot more to be done at the VA. Mm.
1: And also having left in 97, I mean, it's, it's just a different era. That was before Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom, which have put more stress on the VA than they had prior to. So uh, do you think overall the Department of Veterans Affairs has done a pretty good job when it comes to the health care specifically, not talking about the bureaucratic issues and getting to the appointment, but the health care provided at the VA, how, how would you say they're doing?
5: I think the healthcare components is excellent. Um, just like what the uh, nominees stated yesterday, you have to be able to get into the door to get that quality of care, um, and that's the issues. Is access to care uh, it's a challenge. But you know, I, I work closely with physicians and nurses and clinicians at the VA. Even though I left in ninety seven, I return in a different capacity. I do survey. Um, so through those survey, I understand the challenges of deliver comprehensive care for veterans um, is is the, um, the the barrier that created through red tape, to administration, to different um, policy and direction that that lead to what we call now is is the mess mm-hmm. of um, uh, you know wait time, but the care. My dad was a disabled veteran. I would bring him back to the VA anytime.
1: Mm. We're speaking with Lana McKenzie, AMVET's chief medical executive and leader of their HEAL program. You mentioned the VA confirmation hearing yesterday, so let's talk about that a little bit. Robert Wilkie, uh, who... Uh, Having spoken to most of the veteran service organizations about him, everybody's hopeful that he'll be able to do the job well. Uh, The senators yesterday seemed to think that he's going to be confirmed in that job. You, with your experience, 10 years as a nurse at the VA, advocating for veterans for decades after that, how did you view that confirmation hearing yesterday? What did you take away from it?
5: My takeaway is that he got the right attitude. Um, although with the short amount of time he spent as acting secretary, um, he hit the mark with some of the issues that was chronic at the VA. Um, he spoke about staffing shortage. That's been a chronic problem uh, forever. And the uh, right hiring process with the HR at the VA, that's an on- ongoing need to be fixed. Um, and also that um, the customer service. He wanted to reshape that image, and I absolutely agree. You know, the veterans deserve the highest honor when they hit the door and uh, seeking for care, and I think that culture of um, veterans don't have an option need to be gone. He talked about
1: creating more options for veterans but also stated that he's against privatization. Some people think those two things conflict with each other, that it's not possible to create more options for veterans without uh, expanding privatization. What did you think about that when he was saying that?
5: I think people misunderstood the word privatization. Mm -hmm. Um, To me as a clinician and as a business background, privatization means you dismantle a system and uh, you seek other services like you know uh, private care, private insurance, but um, VA can't do it all. They, mm-hmm. they need to be partnered with community and having other option where the VA doesn't have the capacity to provide that type of care for veteran is absolutely needed. Um, they've been doing it for 40 years uh, through different options, purchase for care, fee basis, Um, So it was a a fragmented um, and a different type of purchase for care with the VA Mission Act, Um, kind of tie all of that together and uh, label it just one option, which is community care, partner with university, partner with healthcare system that have the capacity to provide care for veterans. I think it's vital to have community partner with the VA Um, The number of veteran who seek care can continue to increase and the VA capacity has not been increased.
1: Part of the reason for that capacity not increasing is the huge number of personnel that they are uh, short on right now. I think uh, last we checked, there were over 3,000 medical professionals alone that were missing, specialists and doctors and nurses, and then another 30-plus thousand on the admin side and on the bureaucratic side of things. Uh, of course, there would be 30,000 more <laughs> administration people than actual medical professionals needed, but how do you think they can address that, and do you think that's something that, that he put forth a good plan on yesterday?
5: Um, what the staffing shortage is, is a nationwide issues and not just the VA. Um, if you see the number of uh, people who start to enroll in nursing school and um, medical school is less and less every year. There isn't enough incentive for uh, kids who get out of um, high school to consider the medical professions. Um, and, 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 the VA is a unique challenge. It's that the constant turnover with leadership and constant battle with poor outcome scandal in the news. It's very hard to attract talent when they are competing with the same number of nurses and doctors who are seeking job. It absolutely
1: is. And we're speaking with Lana McKenzie, who is uh, the chief medical executive for AMVETS, also heads up their HEAL program, and, as you mentioned, worked for 10 years as a nurse at the VA, dealing with uh, spinal injuries and TBI and things like that. Let's talk about the HEAL program. You just mentioned how the VA can't do it alone, that they need other organizations to contribute. We've talked to several of them here on the show that do various things. That's kind of what the AMVETS HEAL program is about, isn't it? Tell us about the genesis of that program, where it came from. I know it's a fairly uh, recent, fairly new program. Where did it come from, and how are things going so far for HEAL?
5: Well, the HEAL program is um, critical to <clears throat> approach service to service member and veterans to close the loop on the holistic approach. Now, you you see that there's a lot of veteran service organizations and nonprofit um, that provide different type of services for veteran and service member, uh, not too many touch the healthcare component. Um, and AMVET took the lead on bringing on a team of clinicians ch- to focus just on that. Healthcare is on top of every headline in the country. And um, our member at AMVET continue to face that same challenge All the veterans are facing is when they seek care, uh, there's delay and also they don't understand different options out there to, for health care, um, especially the mental health component. Um, the 20 a day is unacceptable. Mm. Um, I believe AMVET leadership have the right um, idea when they set priority for legislation and resolution to reduce suicide prevention and, and um, focus on getting the help some of our veterans Desperately needed. So, the HEAL program focuses on a complete approach and not just mental health. We provide clinical interventions to um, a toll free 833 VET HEAL is the number. Um, anyone can contact that um, helpline, like you mentioned, not just veteran, but service member, family, caregiver, spouses a neighbor who have a concern if they know that one of their neighbor are veterans who withdraw. Um, we we provide a complete clinical intake and um, drill to the next level, understand the challenges. What led the veteran to pick up that phone and call us? Sometimes it's just a, uh, a matter of getting them to a right provider at the VA or the community. So we are uh, provide the services through case management approach. Um, with a clinical um, background, and we have helped so many since the program launched. it. And we literally saved life.
1: Yeah, and the HEAL program, of course, that is an acronym standing for Healthcare Evaluation, Advocacy, and uh, Legislation, the four pillars of the HEAL program for AMVETs. It sounds to me like... Uh, a service officer program but focusing specifically on medical and health care issues is that kind of how you would describe the program we have Amvets, the legion vfw they all have service officers but those service officers can put you in touch with people but they typically don't have medical training they're uh, trained on a wide variety of things on helping veterans get in touch with the right people is this more to get the veterans straight to that that clinical care that medical care and evaluation faster
5: uh, that's you're exactly right. Um, we com- we connecting the veteran to the right level of care, um, regardless of uh, their background. Or um, you know, historically, veterans give up when they couldn't get to uh, that appointment, or um, misdiagnosed. Sometimes mm-hmm. they get um, discharged early, and still unable to manage their issues at home. Uh, we review their medical record to our expertise and um, we navigate veteran to the challenges of, uh, you know, the VA healthcare system is very complicated. Mm. We call it a maze. Yeah. Um, so, so that that's where we come in from as, a, as an advocate, but focus on all of the clinical issues. And we have a little bit of understanding about veteran benefit. Um, so if If necessary, we will connect the veteran with our service officer and discuss about claim compensations and all that um, good stuff that our service officer provide in the uh, benefit war.
1: So you have experts and people like yourself, 10 years as a nurse in the VA, you have doctors and nurses and people like that who are helping out these veterans. But let's be clear. The AMVETS HEAL team is not going to be prescribing medication or anything like that. It's more to streamline the process so that the veteran is – it's almost like you're helping them avoid the first step or I should say avoid but speed up the first step of diagnosis at the VA where they can head in having a better idea of what might need attention and where to go to get it, Right.
5: Right. We don't prescribe medication. We don't provide uh, hand-on care. Um, But we could advocate if the veteran needs certain type of medication has been denied. Hmm. Um, If they have a recommendation and, for example, if certain type of medication are not on the um, approved list of the VA. Because, you know, every big business, they purchase um, supplies and medication in bulk, So if a unique type of medication that is not on approval list and that's the only type of medication that help a veteran, we will pursue, appeal, and um, provide further uh, education to the pharmacist at the VA to ensure the veteran receive those type of medication. There are steps in the VA that you can um, obtain these type of medication uh, and not just stuck with whatever medications is on a proof list. So we do that as well.
1: There's a lot that the Amvets Heal team is doing, and we're speaking to the leader of that team, the chief medical executive for Amvets, Amvets Lana McKenzie. When it comes to the HEAL program, which has been in existence for uh, really only a few months now, if we're looking at it uh, in in the short term, how would you say the process has gone? The progress has gone? Has it lived up to your expectations of what it would be when you uh, started realizing that this was going to be a program you'd be working with?
5: Yeah, having the background of being an advocate, and I have done similar thing in the past, um, is uh, it, it is what I was expecting, is that you don't know the complexity of the individual until you get in touch with them and do that in-depth intake. Um, every case is unique, and the cases that we're handling are so complicated. Sometimes it take weeks to resolve the issues, um, and for some instant, we literally on the phone um, connecting the veteran with the local crisis helpline and uh, local law authority to save that individual from jumping off the bridge uh, at one instant or someone who are close to taking their life. And those are those are huge success for, for us, be able to do that.
1: And, of course, we see these stories uh, almost every day. I mean, if you look at the front page of our website today, we've got a veteran who set himself on fire outside of the state capitol in Georgia. We've got another veteran who six months ago was saying, this VA process is so ridiculous, I should just hang myself. Well, now he has actually hung himself. There are these horror stories every day, and it seems that, again— in both of those instances, it's the process of getting to what they need and want from the VA. In the case of the uh, the one who killed himself, he was looking for mental health care. In the case of the one who set himself on fire, it now looks like he was looking for assistance with housing. What do you think we can do, along with the HEAL team doing great work, what do you think we can do to streamline the process of getting people from point A to point B at the VA? Point A being when they show up, point B being when their issues are dealt with. How can we improve that, and how can we do it quickly?
5: Well, we need a permanent leader at the VA who compassionate and understand the challenges of these veterans, listen to these story, and um, streamline the process. And customer service is key because when when someone who's desperate for help and they contact and the first point of contact turn him off, um, that's a barrier. Mm-hmm. And and so many of these story and cases that we heard in the news, a uh, story we heard in the news, what about those stories never make it to the news? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we encourage veterans, family member, um, contact us, contact any um, help that nearby that that you're aware of, but don't let it build up to the crisis moment and then contact someone. Um, Although there are a lot of help out there with the crisis helpline, the um, suicide prevention program at the VA, the community um, have been raised with awareness about veterans taking their life at the highest rate. So collectively, I believe, We can fix this with the right attitude.
1: And the right attitude is certainly something that the VSOs have, including AMVETs. And we're speaking to their chief medical executive, Lana McKenzie, also the leader of the HEAL program. When it comes to the average veteran, someone who's not dealing with, uh, and I can't even say the average veteran, when it comes to the veteran who's not dealing with significant mental health issues, but sees our brothers and sisters in arms that are What do you think we can do as a veteran community? Those of us who aren't in a position like you as veteran advocates and working for one of the VSOs, what can the average everyday veteran do to help out in combating these situations? Is it as simple as just uh, making your thoughts known on what the VA needs to do and getting more involved?
5: Yes, absolutely. You can get more involved by just, you know, get some basic understanding how to have a conversation with your buddy or having a conversation with someone in distress that would be a tremendous help. Um, I think that it just that first line of contact will will somehow reduce the anxiety level or, or the moment of someone who just crying out for help. I think veteran had the right attitude because you you gave your life to serve our country and that never left you with the service attitude and, and caring for one another, what make American great.
1: One last thing about the HEAL program as we finish up here speaking with Lana McKenzie, chief medical executive and leader of AMVETS HEAL program. It's not just for AMVETS members, right? This is available to any veteran, any military spouse, anybody serving out there, family members. Anyone can call. Don't need to be an AMVETS member, correct?
5: You're exactly right. Anyone can contact us through email if they don't feel like Get off the phone. As you know, certain people rather just dealing, you know, behind the computer screen. We're fine with that. Uh, you can email us at vetheal at amvet.org or you can contact us at one eight three three V V E T H E A L.
1: That's one eight three three 833 VETHEAL and the email address again, vetheal at amvets.org. And you know, that's interesting and it's good to see that the VSOs are adapting because some of the younger generation don't like talking on the phone it's the most bizarre thing to someone like me who grew up before text messaging existed and all this stuff but i've seen it i worked in a newsroom in new york where you know kids coming straight out of college would get an entry-level job there and wouldn't want to pick up the phone to call someone and talk to them which kind of need to do to do an interview. You can't do interviews by text these days. (laughs) But how important do you think it is for AMVETS and the other VSOs and organizations uh, that work within the veteran space to adapt to that, to keep up with the changes in technology and the changes of this younger generation of veteran that's now coming into the community?
5: Oh, change has already hit us a long time ago, and we we wasn't ready for all these technology. Um, But I think Understanding the need, the unique need of uh, younger generations, Um, what in it for them to join a veteran service organization, and what we have to offer them. Um, You know, I think service is the mentality everyone want to give back the right way, Uh, but also they need to be healed first. I think each individual veteran who transition out of the service um, need time to regroup. Um, and I think the executive order that provide mental health services for all uh, transition member the first twelve month is critical. Um, you know, is is regardless of eligibility, you can gain that type of services. And you just never know once you um, open up. There's other issues, perhaps that are affecting your health. Um, lack of sleep and depression can lead to um, cardiac problem. Um, there's a lot of issues that come with mental health that n- need to be addressed before it's really impact you
1: and those issues are being addressed by a number of organizations including the Amvets Heal team headed up by lana mckenzie their chief medical executive off medical executive who has been our guest here on the morning briefing we want to thank her as well as the service women's action network and of course super producer jq's Thank you for listening today. Hope you have a fantastic day, and don't forget to check out ConnectingVets.com for the latest and greatest veteran news and information. Take care, have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow for Friday's show. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? here. Only at T-Mobile. Get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch.